Uh, we have two uh, readings from God's Word today. Uh, we're starting with Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah was a prophet, and he prophesied to the southern kingdom. If you, you are using one of the church Bibles, you can find it on page 684. Uh, and it's Isaiah that's speaking. So Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as a terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. Our second reading comes from Mark chapter 4. That will help you to read along. Uh, we're starting at verse 1. If you're using the church Bibles, you'll find, them, uh, find it on page 1004. So we're reading from Mark chapter 1. Sorry, Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 1. So 1004, if you've got the church Bibles. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil, 
It sprang out quickly because the soil, soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has been given more, whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or get, gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again, he says, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to him as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord.
Evening, everyone. Please do keep your Bibles open uh, in uh, that passage, Mark 4, 1 through 34. Oh, I get myself sorted here briefly. I'll lead us briefly in prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks and you do so powerfully in your word and in the power of your spirit that's at work among us as we sit under your word. Despite the heat, Heavenly Father, please uh, uh, enable us to concentrate well, to rejoice and tremble at your word, to be shaped by it, to delight in it, and to become more like Jesus on account of taking it to heart. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So, here is an ancient Greek philosopher whose name is Epictetus, who clearly lived in the time when people's names sounded like a serious medical condition. Sorry, I can't come to the party later, I've got a, a big Epictetus, like, yeah. Now, while I'm guessing most people will not go know this guy's name, I wouldn't be surprised if some, maybe even many of us, are familiar with one of his more well-known sayings. You see, Epictetus said, you got two ears and one mouth, so that you can listen twice as much as you speak. Now, it's probably undergone many variations from lots of people since, but uh, that's the basic gist. Now, me with my irreverent humour feels like responding to him, well, Epictetus, you've got two legs and one brain, so you should think less and walk away. But... He does have a very, very important point, which is probably why he's saying is well-remembered. No doubt you and I have had times when our big mouth has got us into trouble or has got us looking really silly. Uh, and if you think, oh, that's never... I talk all the time and I've never been in trouble or look silly. Anyway. But what does it mean to actually be a good listener? We know it's a thing, we know it's important for followers of Jesus, right? James, the, the, uh, the writer James says, the tongue's really hard to tame, you should be quick to listen, slow to speak. What does it mean to be a good listener, not only in the sight of people, but in the sight of the one who created our ears and our mouths? What does it mean to please God in how or by how we listen? And uh, why is it important too, as Jesus says in today's passage, listen carefully to what we hear of God's revelation in particular? And how do you do that really well? Of course, that's what we're going to discover in today's instalment from Mark's Gospel. By way of context, I hope you remember from last week, uh, from the crowds, the religious leaders, Jesus' family members, tax collectors and sinners, demons, all the different people that Jesus had interaction with, you can sort of distill down four basic responses that people have to the question of who Jesus is. And Jono very helpfully gave us four L's, uh, which we can sort of, you know, categorise those. Uh, for some people, Jesus is the latest fad. He's good for a party trick, but we don't want to be much involved with him. For some, he is a liar. You remember last week, the whole uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Jesus is in league with the devil, according to the Pharisees, so they, they call him a liar. For some, he's a lunatic. You remember his family members said, we've got to get him out of that house because he's out of his mind. But of course, for those with ears to hear properly, he is Lord. He is clearly uh, the Son of God, who God has made to be the Christ, the one who God has put in charge of all people and all things. And so, in this week's encounter, we get yet another huge crowd, but this time Jesus really goes on the front foot, 
And he starts doing something to separate those who kind of fit the first three L's from from those that fit the last. Jesus speaks in parables, we're told, in order to actually divide his hearers, to push the outsiders further away and to draw, motivate, even provoke the insiders to grasp hold of him even more. Uh, From verse 1, I hope you can see in your Bibles there, there's a crowd again so huge that says Jesus had to get another time into a floating platform like he did uh, in chapter 3. Then in verse 2, we read that he taught them many things, yes, but he taught them by parables. That's that's the big point of this verse. Now, some of you may have been taught, particularly if you're sort of my generation or up, that a parable is basically an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, you know, like a simple way of explaining something really easily. Uh, I'm really sorry if you've been taught that because it's thoroughly unbiblical and it's wrong and it's rubbish. More than any other of the teaching of Jesus in the Bible, the parables require explanation in order to be heard, right? Uh, The word parable itself is translated from a Hebrew word that means dark saying, a saying that sort of is hard to grasp. Uh, A really good example of a parable in the Old Testament is, uh, you remember, Samson gave a riddle to the Philistines. The whole point of him saying that was so that it will be very, very difficult for them to crack and understand. Jesus speaks parables because he's actually wanting it to be something that divides the crowd, something that even pushes people away. I think a really helpful way to think about a parable, and I spent ages coming up with this, so you better appreciate it, is a magnet. Remember the old horseshoe magnets? Everyone plays with them at some point. The, uh, you, you put it against one that's, you know, like the right way round for it to attract and it really, you know, sticks to it. But if it's the other way round, it, it just really repels, right? The same magnet can, can repel something or attract the other one, depending on the position that the other magnet is in. Jesus speaks in order to repel the crowd such that only those who are genuinely keen, only those who are the right way round, or to use Jesus' words, only those who have the ears to hear will be attracted and will seek more. Beginning with a command that you can see there in verse 3, listen, he then gives the famous parable of the sower, or the the parable of the, the, the four soils, from verses 4 through 9, which I suspect all of us, or at least the vast majority of us, are pretty familiar with. It's a very famous and well-known parable. And I will go through it in just a moment, because Jesus goes through it. But then this is what happens after he says that parable. Read with me from verse 10. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him, so a few people that had sort of stayed asked him about the parables. Notice they don't ask him about the parables, singular, they ask him about the parables, the why are you teaching like this, Jesus? And so verse 11, it says, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything he said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. It sort of sounds like he goes, yeah, I'm making it really hard because otherwise they'd turn and be forgiven. It kind of sounds like he says he doesn't want them to be forgiven. Well, yes, that's actually right. Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 6, which we had as our first reading, where God had already resolved at that point in Israel's history 
that the northern tribes would be dispersed and the two southern tribes, who Isaiah is really addressing, uh, would go to exile in Babylon, such that the Messiah, the seed of David, would not emerge from this great and mighty nation, but he would actually emerge from this tiny little stump that looks like it's burnt. That was what God had planned. And so God sent the prophet Isaiah to confirm Israel in their hardness, to make their judgment complete, if you like, by preaching a message of judgment. Because if they did turn and repent, well, then his his plan would be thwarted. Now, here, Jesus does the same thing. He preaches primarily not to save, but to condemn. You see, Jesus knows that God's plan is that the same crowds who flocked around him now would eventually need to become the ones that, left to their own sinful desires, would yell out, crucify, crucify him. Jesus knew that God had destined for him to be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and that because they be left to their own disobedience, they do the necessary work of eventually crucifying the Son of God so that those who were destined to become God's children would have their means of salvation. So for these 12 and for the others who were pursuing Jesus for the right reasons, after explaining the reason for speaking in parables, in, for, for speaking in this divisive way, of course, Jesus then goes on to give the secret meaning of that parable of the soul, the one that Mark has recorded for us. Point two on your outline, the explanation gets given to the insiders. And it turns out that the explanation of this particular parable, the, the parable of the four soils, is to make the very same point that Jesus has just been teaching his insiders, that there are those who are interested in Jesus, but aren't actually interested in the kingdom. Those who might want to come along for the ride for a bit, but who aren't interested in actually seeking first his kingdom. They're not interested in repentance and faith. And that would be, if they were, it would be demonstrated by very humble, very serious listening. And so in verse 13, after even provoking the insiders, presumably to make them want to listen even more hard, Jesus explains the parable of the sower. And this is the only reason we actually know what it means. Read with me from verse 14. It says, the farmer sows the word... Some people, like seed along the path where the word is sown, as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. If you ever hear someone say, you know, Jesus is such a great storyteller, so clever how he comes up with these interesting ways of getting things across, you should start to be worried that, yeah, the word's been snatched away. He's talking about the the, the way that Jesus says something is very different to talking about what he actually says. The, the content matters far more than, than, than the method. Some might think to themselves, and I've seen this before, you know, I just cannot accept that all people are really inherently sinful and evil, such that we need Jesus to suffer God's wrath in our place so that sinners like us could find forgiveness. I, I just find that too... It's not true. I'm not really that bad. And Satan loves convincing people that we're more righteous than the scriptures say we actually are. Hence, again, the word can get snatched away. 
Verse 16, others like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution come because of the word, they quickly fall away. This one was uh, taught to me really helpfully in my own uh, experience of becoming a follower of Jesus by, by the person who shared the gospel with me. Uh, that person was an uncle of mine and uh, he'd set forth the gospel plainly using two ways to live, I remember it quite clearly, and at the end I said, well, I want to turn, I want to become a follower of Jesus, to which he said, no. And as a matter of fact, he said, here's the paper with all the Bible references on it, take it home, sleep on it, read it, think about it for a while. A couple of weeks after I had become a Christian, which wasn't that long after, I said to him, why didn't you do that? Isn't the whole point of you sharing the gospel that you wanted me to get to the point where I say, yes, I, I, I want to repent, I want to follow Jesus? And he goes, well, two things. Number one, if you're going to become a follower of Jesus, it would happen no matter what. God's the one who actually calls people. But secondly, I don't want it to be some hype, spur of the moment decision where you might just think this is wonderful, but not actually if seriously consider the cost that in order to follow Jesus you've got to take up your cross and follow him and he was absolutely right to do so I wouldn't be surprised if some of us have had the experience of a person all of a sudden switching on to Jesus but then almost as quickly as they come they just kind of work out that it's a bit too much and, and then you just don't see them and then comes the one that hits the church in the western world hardest of all from verse 18 Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The worries of this life refers to this age, this world, rather than the age to come with the new creation. We can so easily get preoccupied with making sure we're as comfortable and as fulfilled as possible in the here and now, such that we've got no time or energy left to be ready for the there and then. The deceitfulness of wealth refers to the idea that wealth guarantees comfort and security, which of course is a big fat lie. The people in the modern Western world, we have greater wealth, greater life expectancy, access to far more uh, uh, medical help than all the humans in history and most of the rest of the world combined. And yet, we have far more depression, far more anxiety and far higher suicide rate than people currently in the third world. The wealth does not give the comfort and the security. And as the church is increasingly infiltrated by our rich materialistic cultural way of thinking, so the deceitfulness of wealth chokes out the fruitfulness of the church. The desires for other things can mean even good things, but things that can get in the way of fruitful Christian growth because they attract our desire more than living in accordance with the priorities Jesus makes clear in his world. What a devastatingly sad reality that 30 plus years ago, in order to average 100 people in your congregation of a Sunday, you needed 120 people on your roll because, you know, average of 20 people, some will be sick, some on holidays, whatever. Now, you want to have 100 people in your congregation, you need 200 people on your roll. The desire for other things chokes out the fruitfulness. 
What a devastatingly sad reality to think that once upon a time, and this is well before my lifetime, Christians protested against Sunday trading. You only asked me the reasons about that, I'll tell you later, it was good that we did. But now, one of the big reasons people neglect Sunday fellowship is sport. The desires for other things choke out the fruitfulness. Mind you, we didn't protest hard enough against Sunday trading or no-fault divorce or abortion legislation so that when it came time to protesting against homosexual marriage, we were already on the back foot and now with the onset of euthanasia and the eradication of SRE from schools, we're too busy making a living, paying off the mortgage, planning the next overseas holiday, driving the kids to all the extracurricular activities that we don't have much time and energy to protest at all. Plus, we keep buying into the lie that somehow it's noble to not have any interest in what's going on politically, just to get on with the job of preaching the gospel. Even though the very gospel we preach compels us to love our neighbour, which frankly necessitates at least some level of political thought and involvement. What a devastatingly sad reality that it's easy to find Christians posting on social media far more about their fitness achievements than their spiritual battles. Far more about what we eat and drink and wear, which are the things the pagans chase after, than anything pertaining to the kingdom of heaven, which we're supposedly seeking first. Satan's gospel is the gospel that says, you can say yes to Jesus and also say yes to the world. What a beautiful gospel Satan has provided with. Yes, you can have Jesus and you don't have to give up any of the comforts, the pleasures, the desires, the wealth of this world. What a fantastic gospel if you're a demon. What a devastatingly sad reality that one of the biggest ways we see young people getting the life choked out of them is by the dating of and sadly even the getting married to the non-Christian. The fact that this is a big issue that as a youth minister I keep needing to confront shows how far behind we really are. The desire for other things chokes out the fruitfulness. During my time at Moore Theological College, there were some students who had given up rather lucrative careers in order to go into full-time vocational ministry, for which the pushback they got came understandably from their pagan friends who thought, why the heck would you do that? but even more so from Christian family members. The deceitfulness of wealth chokes out the fruitfulness. Now, brothers and sisters, for many people, Jesus' magnet here will repel on account of its intolerant, un-PC, uninclusive, hardcore, all-or-nothing kind of tone. But for others, it will yet attract It'll provoke you to want to latch onto something more, to want to be different than those three useless soils. And I hope that that's you. As a matter of fact, if you're here, I kind of suspect it is you. Because that means you're either on, or if not yet, you're probably soon to be on, the good soil. Verse 20, others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. In other words, you can tell a good soil disciple, a real disciple, by how fruitful they are. 
by how committed they are to hearing and obeying the word of God. Now, as I say that, I recognise, and I recognise this in myself as well, that there can be a sort of guilt-inducing thing. It's like, oh, well, how good am I? Oh, well, I kind of fail at this and I'm not very good at that. And so if I'm a good soil disciple, oh, no, what if I'm not really because of all the shortcomings I have? Listen carefully. Part of the good fruit, part of that crop, 30, 60, 100-fold, cannot help but include disappointment at failings cannot help but include the fact that I need to confess. And the wonderful thing about knowing Jesus as Lord and Saviour is that I'm actually safe to fess up to my many shortcomings in the knowledge that, thank God, He's the gardener, not me. It ultimately is down not to my efforts, but who God is and what He has done. Yes, so I want to see more people get planted on that good soil. And so you should, so we all should if we are followers of Jesus. I hope you're going to come along to one of those uh, Wednesday or Thursday night uh, evangelism training uh, meetings. But also, yes, people on the good soil are super, super thankful that God is the one who does the planting and growing and that it therefore doesn't ultimately rely on our efforts or religious activities. That in and of itself is actually part of Christian growth. We admit that in and of ourselves we could never be on the good soil We don't brush over or deny our many failings. We recognise the pull of the things of this world that often do overpower us. But we don't stay there. We keep recognising the thorns for what they are and go, "Uh, uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, let's get away from that. We keep listening to the words of our God and Saviour. We keep repenting of our sins in the wonderful knowledge that He has done absolutely everything to ensure that you and I can say with conviction, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And ironically, the ones who are planted on the good soil are the ones who actually, in the end, find genuine comfort and security. We don't always get happiness in the world, but we do get joy. We don't always get wealth and prosperity, though, frankly, in our country, we pretty much do, but we do get contentment. We might lose friends and family who are enslaved by the trimmings and trappings of this world, And yet we gain brothers and sisters and mothers in Christ and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus encourages you and I to be the kind of people who desperately and unashamedly cling to his word, to search intently for the meaning in his teaching. Which is why we study the Bible at growth groups. Sign up if you haven't already. For all the light that Jesus' teaching sheds, it is still useless if the person is just going to keep their eyes shut. The person who doesn't make the effort to open. And Jesus wants, he provokes you even to try hard to open them. Verse 21, look with me, verse 21. He said to them, do you bring a lamp out and put it, to, to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out in the open. Anyone who has ears, let them hear. And it's like a command, please, I want them to hear. And what does it mean for Jesus to hear properly? Verse 24, consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Translation, if you go hard, if you grab on to the teacher and chase after him, even though the crowd has dispersed, and you say, teacher, please explain to me what you mean. 
well, then you are one who has, and you will therefore be given more. But if you're with the crowd who at the end of the day have had enough, that was a cool miracle, I'll come back tomorrow, whatever, then even what you do have will be taken away. This is why Mark, in the final section of tonight's uh, passage, includes a bit more teaching that Jesus gave to the crowds that warns them unless they actively seek the kingdom, which you do by careful listening, then it can just easily be missed. From verse 26, he gives another parable of the sower who had no idea how the, the, uh, the planted seeds turned into a crop, but he's really happy that they do and he harvests them at the end. In fact, there's such a great difference between the, the putting the seed in the ground and what happens at the end, the, the big growth of the, the, the crop that gets put to the, the sickle, that uh, it kind of might take you by surprise if you sort of don't know that it's happening. Now, that's really what the final parables are about, but we'll look at the very last one. Read for me uh, verse 30. So again, he said, what should we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable should we use to describe it? Well, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. So the smallest of seeds, the seed that you don't look carefully, you won't even know that it's there, you'll easily miss it. The growth, of course, is slow and gradual, takes a year. So unless you know that it's happening... You might not even realise until it's too late, until it's time for the sickle. Good listening means putting in the effort to understand the Word of God. It's actually active listening. It involves letting God's Word change and shape your feelings and expectations rather than letting your feelings and expectations shape God's Word. It means ordering your life and your priorities around God's kingdom rather than ordering God's kingdom around your life and your priorities. See, naturally, you won't do this. It'll be like a mustard seed that you won't even see. You've actually got to take note, do the work. If I had to put this slab of Mark's teaching into a simple sentence, I'd say something like, genuine members of Jesus' kingdom will humbly and painstakingly cherish had to choose the really hard and the really good, right? Painstakingly cherish what God has revealed in his word. That's what the magnet of Jesus, though repellent, is also provoking people to do. And of course, there are two kinds of people that this magnet's going to work on. I'll speak to the first of those who are not yet repelled. They're actually seeking, but not yet happy to identify as a follower of Jesus. Uh, if that's you, I don't know everyone here tonight, if that's you, first of all, praise God that you are here. You're doing the right thing. If you want to find out about Jesus, this is an excellent way of doing it. We read the Word of God here and teach it. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is a place to find out about Jesus. You've heard the saying, it's always good to keep an open mind, and that's true when it comes to seeking. However, Jesus will eventually leave this crowd and go elsewhere. The idea of having an open mind is so that sooner or later, it closes on something. It settles on something. There are people who just always eternally seem to have an open mind, and that's a good way to ensure that your brain will fall out. You actually need to have it open in order 
to say, yes, this is where I'm going to put the stake down. I know we're only four chapters into Mark's Gospel, but if you know already that Jesus really is Lord, it's so patently obvious that God has sent this man to be the ruler over your life, then stop seeking, close the mind in this sense and embrace him as Lord and Saviour. Say, you know what, I'm going to take the step. I'm going to, I'm going to start living for Jesus. Put, let him and his priorities be more important than me and my priorities. If you want to do that, for goodness sake, come and talk to me. That would be a really, really good thing to talk about. But for what I suspect is the, the, the majority of us here, that we have found, that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that we recognise Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, that we recognise Him as the one who underwent the wrath that you and I deserve such that we could be the fruitful children of God who are in the process of, of multiplying uh, in terms of our fruitfulness the application of the parables is almost basically the same. Now that you have found, keep on seeking. Keep on unashamedly, painstakingly cherishing the Word of God, throwing yourself at it more and more and more with the expectation that more and more and more will be revealed. I've found that over the period of uh, my Christian life, that as I've clung to Jesus, as I've painstakingly sought to let his word shape my thoughts, my life, my heart, my thinking, that it's become ever increasingly apparent to me that my sinfulness is always worse than I thought it was, right? It's kind of like the longer I'm a Christian, the more sinful I realise I am. Now, if I was just to leave it there, that'd be really sad. That'd be what, what some theologians call a way to spiritual depression. But that's not the only thing I realise. You see, I also cannot help but realise, as I keep looking at who Jesus is and what he's done, as I keep grappling with his word, that God is so infinitely holy, but part of his holiness is actually expressed in his loving kindness, his grace. So as I keep growing in awareness of my sin, so I also equally keep growing in my awareness that God has made me holy like him and I have a wonderful... Uh, more than two legs to stand on when it comes to being a cherished son of God, as do all who know Jesus Christ and Lord and Saviour. The cross is a really interesting thing because it sort of does two things at the same time. You look at the cross and you're seeing this is what the Lord of heaven and earth truly, honestly believes about human sin, that it does deserve the full cup of God's wrath poured full strength onto the sinner. That is just and right, even though it might be offensive. But at the very point where that's happening, that same holy God is saying, I am willingly taking this on myself so that it need not be applied to you. The most wonderful thing about the cross is that it does those two things simultaneously. The more you cling to Jesus, the more, yes, you realise you're undeserving and the more you realise you are infinitely valuable and, and, and cherished because of what God was doing at that very point. One final thing, if you want to have something sort of really practical and concrete about, well, what does it mean to sort of like actively listen to the Word of God, uh, painstakingly cherish it, I'll, I'll tell you just one thing. This is one thing I've been doing recently and I love to share it with you all and I hope you can do it as well. A lot of people probably do this or they've heard it. 
You read some of the Word of God, as you do, and then you pray. And when you pray, find just some little bit of what you've been reading to shape the prayer. Find some little bit of what you've been reading to shape the prayer. We had a, a reading from Isaiah 6 just before, from Karen, right? Who can remember anything in Isaiah 6? You know, Uzziah died, I saw the Lord before me high, and I, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, I'm stuffed, but then the, the, the seraph grabs a coal and puts it on his mouth, don't worry, dude, I made you clean, and God's saying, who am I going to send? <laughs> and Isaiah's like, hey, you've just cleansed me, all right, pick me, pick me. And he goes, you don't know what you put your hand up for, sonny, go and preach a message of judgment to all your people. Oh, <gasps> how long? Uh, yeah, until they're really, really mushed. Okay. I've read that part of the Bible. Now, what am I going to pray? Well, first of all, dear God, thank you that you have cleansed me, like a seraph putting a cold on my lips. Thank you that in the blood of Jesus, I've been cleansed of all my sin. Just that little bit alone is a good little bit of sort of listening to the Word of God, because I've taken it and I've put it into prayer. I could do further than that. Dear Father, if it's your will to use me uh, to, to speak in a way that furthers your plan, please let me do that. I really don't want to be the condemning judge guy. If you could hold off that God, that'd be nice. You know, thank you that we live after the day of Isaiah, but I want to do that. It's a very simple method that says I'm listening actively to your word, basically because I'm praying in the shape of, of, of what this word said. It's a really wonderful way of doing it. You might have questions, comments, stuff you want to say about that, uh, you can do that in the QR form. I'm going to lead us in prayer and we'll go to our next thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who speaks only ever always for our good. And thank you that as insiders, uh, we're able to grapple with his word and we're able to be given more and more Father, may we be those who delight to uh, produce more and more Christian fruitfulness. May we be those who look for opportunities to see more people get planted on the good soil. May we continually be unashamed to confess our many failings and shortcomings in the wonderful, uh, assuring knowledge that really it's ultimately because of who you are and what you've done that we can be absolutely assured of having no condemnation. Uh, commit ourselves to him and his service this week. In Jesus' name, amen.